Well, hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Myron Pierce, and uh, I am here with Durbin Gray. Durbin Gray. This is my second time getting out, being able to hang out with you, Durbin, man. I'm starting to think you like me, man. I do, uh, especially because <laughs> I found out there's black people in Nebraska. And and so, <laughs> I mean, you know, other than the, who plays for the Cornhuskers. So, man, I'm. this is an honor and a privilege for me. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's black people, man. <laughs> well, hey, I, I know uh, we've been we've been plugging this new book you've come out with, man. Tell us about a little bit about um, what it's about, and then really um, Derwin, your journey to uh, to writing it. Yeah, man. Yeah. So 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 first and foremost, um, uh, my book, building the multi ethnic church, and the subtitle I think really captures the essence of the book. It says a gospel vision of love, grace, reconciliation in a divided world. And so, what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a resource not only for my own pastoral experience. But I wanted to take the theological beauty of Jesus and Paul and create a resource that pastors, first and foremost, could be encouraged, could be um, equipped, and then they can help their congregation execute what the gospel looks like in real life. And, and the word gospel is used, right? But what is the gospel? The, the evangelon is King Jesus saves. But what does he say? Yeah. Uh, he not only saves people, but he's going to redeem all of creation and the people that he redeems becomes the new people of God. And so that's every nation, tribe and tongue, every ethnicity. Right. And so the saving king wants to create new creation on earth through his people. And as we love each other, the beauty is that we begin to image forth God's goodness in a broken world. Like, like we should be the glue to keep society together because of the way we love each other. That that's my 22 pound cat. So if you see a giant tail, it's not a puma. It's my cat. Yeah. He's yeah. He's huge. This dude is big. Yeah. He, he likes to be cuddled. So he jumped up here with me. Yeah. Well, there went, um, Talk to me about your own personal journey toward as to like why the idea of multi-ethnic is important to you just as a man, as a leader, as a pastor. Yeah. Well, you know, first, first, if I'm in an audience, Der Derwin, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm watching this, you're catching the replay and someone thinks, why should this matter to me? Yeah. Yeah, What's man. So, so, so. You know yeah, the reason why it should matter to you is that it's at the very heartbeat of God's desire for humanity. Ephesians 3.10 talks about that the manifold wisdom of God, meaning the multifaceted wisdom of God, was made known in the church to the principalities and dark powers. And this was realized through Christ Jesus. So it matters because God has always wanted a redeemed multi-ethnic family to inhabit 
earth so that his kingdom can come to earth as it is in heaven. This isn't periphery. Like what sense does it make that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to forgive you of your sins, but you can still not love your brother. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to reconcile you. I'm going to make you a temple of the Holy Spirit so that you can still have prejudice. No, God reconciles us vertically through the blood and then horizontally because we share the same blood. And so I'm getting a little passionate because this is actually Christianity 101. So my doctoral work and expertise is in first century, second temple Jewish context. It was normal Christianity for the church, the ecclesia, to be composed of Jews and Gentiles, male, female, rich and poor. And this new family was glued together by the blood of Jesus. And so why is this important? Because this is God's heartbeat. But secondly, this is God's mechanism of discipleship. Echoes of chamber create silos of ignorance. And what happens Mm. is, is when the other joins you in conversation around Jesus, our different points of views from life look at the same objective truth from a different point. And so your difference and your eyes make me better. And my difference in my eyes on the same thing makes you better. Every one of Paul's letters is written to Jews and Gentiles. And when we dehistorialize the New Testament, we miss a lot of those things. Like, Like why in the world after... Um, 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 Jesus is challenged on what is love in Luke chapter 10. And he tells a story about a good Samaritan. Uh, The Samaritans were the result of the Assyrians who invaded the Northern kingdoms of Israel and took over. And so Jews and Gentiles uh, uh, intermingled and created this group called the Samaritans. And there was a 700 year ethnic feud between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan reflecting the character of God. What was Jesus doing? One, he was teaching about who God was, but two, he was showing that reconciliation is broke through when we choose to love, like really, really love. And number three, what is a Samaritan? A Samaritan is a Jew and Gentile in one body. What's the church supposed to be? A Jew and Gentile in one body. So so what does that mean for us today? Uh, Pastor, this is what it means for us today, is we should desire, because of the good news of King Jesus, to gather God's multi-ethnic family and then teach each other to love each other. Like you will know my disciples because they love each other. And I think in American church, when we think of love, we think of sentimental feelings. No, love is sacrificial. Love advocates. Love gives one's life. Love cares. Love sees each other as brothers and sisters, not Republicans, not Democrats, not Libertarians, but brothers and sisters. And so Uh, um, This is an aspect of deep discipleship and discipleship tends to be very shallow in the American church because we view Jesus as simply a transaction to get us to heaven when we die instead of a transformative presence in our lives.
Let me ask. Let me ask you this. So when you look in the Book of Acts, even the Gospels, but in the Book of Acts, we see a couple of things that are happening. We see Peter's ignorance and racism um, being played out through his conversation with um, the centurion. We see um, him playing, the, uh, you know, hy hypocrisy when he's uh, when Paul is writing, you know, about Galatians and in Galatians and what he talked about how Peter kind of was you know, hypocritical in eating with this group of people. And then when they show up and all these things are happening, <clears throat> the Greek speaking Jews and the Hellenistic, uh, the Hebraic Jews, the injustice there culturally, all those instances there in the book of Acts. What do you see? What, what would, if we were being written about, what would the instances be in our day that yeah. we need to address right now as leaders? Yeah. So, 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 so what I would say if history was being written about us, um, I would I would say that the American church, what we've done primarily is we have preached a reduced gospel. Uh, we have preached a gospel that says Jesus only died for our sins and we get to go to heaven when we die. Uh, we have preached a gospel that says let's ignore the tragedies of the past that shaped and forged the present we live in now. And I would say that the church has been woeful for the most part on ethnic relationships. And I would say that a lot of times the church in America has been advocates for slavery, advocates for segregation, advocates for injustice versus standing up. Now, we had some incredible British Christians, you know, uh, uh, Spurgeon was against slavery and John Wesley was against slavery. And of course, uh, black pastors and there were some white as well. But overall, we haven't done very well. And I think a lot of it is rooted in a reductionistic view of the gospel. Right. But when you take a step back and you look at the history of the church. Right. So. Uh, you made a great point by talking about Peter, okay? Um, Peter was a Jewish man. And in Acts chapter 10, God challenges Peter to go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius was a Gentile and an Italian. And Peter says, hey, uh, you know, they're unclean. Their food is unclean. And God says, do not call unclean what I call clean. This is Acts chapter 10. And then when Peter gets to Cornelius's house, he sees Cornelius, who was what's called a God fear. That's a Gentile who had respect for the God of Israel, but who did not undergo circumcision. One of the things that's really important is that in the ancient days, to be a Jewish person had nothing to do with the color of your skin or ethnicity. It had everything to do with your allegiance to the God of Israel and the practicing of Jewish ethnic badges. What made a Jew a Jew was they worshiped Yahweh. Males were circumcised on the eighth day. They ate kosher. They celebrated the festivals. That's what made you a Jew, not the color of your skin. Well, Cornelius was a God fear. 
And so when Peter comes, he preaches this incredible sermon about God not being a respecter of any persons, not showing any favoritism. All who call on the name of the Lord are rescued into God's family, despite ethnicity, right? It's a beautiful moment. But then in Galatians chapter two, we see the same Peter who preached that message, get up from the table with the Gentiles, when he's eating with them because right. the party of James came. And then Peter, I mean, Paul lovingly rebuked Peter and said, what you're doing is out of step with the gospel. And to the pastors listening, this is so important. Notice his behavior of treating the Gentiles like second-class citizens is out of step with the gospel. The gospel affects behavior and how we treat our brothers and sisters. Mm. You know, wow. Durban, when, so, so when I when I talk to leaders in my city, um, you know, they say things like, you know, or I've heard, where do we start? What do we do? Yeah. Right. What's the what's the point for a pastor who, who was right at the beginning of this thing? He's yeah, saying, Derwin, you feel you, but I don't know. I don't know what to, okay, what to so, start. So so this is. So this is the first thing to do. Uh, grab a few of your close friends and decide to pray and fast. That's the first thing you do. Decide to pray and to fast and pray for God to reveal his heart to you. Spend time uh, in the Gospels. Spend time in the New Testament and circle every time you see Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Every time you see an ethnic group just circling, what you're going to notice is there's a lot of circles. Thirdly, um, I want to encourage you to get my book, uh, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. I have laid out for you not only the theology, but also practices that can help mm. you. And so what I tell people often is, is this, is, is if you're asking me first, what do I do? That's the second question, not the first question. The first question mm -hmm. is, how do I become the type of person that can lead a church like this? There you go. So in this book, there in chapter go. one, I show that 58% of mega churches in America now are considered multi-ethnic. That means that one ethnic group does not make up more than 80%. Okay. But of those 58% right. of uh, mega ch churches that are multi-ethnic, 90% of those pastors are white. Now, is that wrong that 90% of the pastors are white? Of course not. But we recognize progressive sanctification is a process. So therefore, your ethnicity and your background gives you lenses to see through. Hence, why the New Testament in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 13... Acts chapter, my cat did some crazy stuff. Acts chapter six and Acts chapter 13. Hence, you see diverse leadership teams. Why is that important? Number one, they had yes, the sir. spiritual character. And number two, ethnic diversity and your situatedness in life gives you a perspective that other people don't have. And so if you look at our church's um, website, you see incredible um, ethnic diversity, 
And that's not because that's affirmative action. I'm affirming the right action to have different perspectives and different voices. One, because they're qualified, but two, the other teaches us things that we normally would not know. So we see that pastors in Acts chapter six and Acts chapter 13 as well. And so leadership is so important. Also, identity by representation matters. Also, when I see people that look like me in positions of authority, um, in positions of leadership, that has an impact. And then, you know, what else do you need to do? Cross-cultural competency is important. Um, I know that there is a brother who is um, watching from Argentina, which is so, so cool, right? That is that is dope. Well, even in Latin American countries, you deal with colorism, you deal with ethnic tribes, like this the human race is great at dividing each others. And so yeah. God wants to heal yeah. the human race through the blood. Uh, Myron, I see a question here. It says, uh, why do you think yeah. most multi-ethnic megachurches are led by white pastors? Do non-white churches have trouble integrating white people as minorities? Or have we done a good job of developing diverse leaders? Beautiful question. Number one, and I researched this in my book as well, is... When predominantly white churches think of multi-ethnic or ethnic integration, it's minorities coming to a white space or white church. Rarely, if ever, is it white people going to a minority-led church. Okay? So that has to change, number one. Secondly, mega churches are able to provide resources and systems and processes and that will lead people to join those churches. But here's the problem, though, is over the last two years, there's been an exodus of people of color and black people out of minority led mega churches right. because it's almost like, well, our color is welcome, but not our culture and the things that affect us. Okay. So, yeah, Derek, you know, can you speak on Can you unpack a little bit more? Their color is welcome, but their culture is unwelcome. Because yeah, I think that's going to help this question here. Yeah, so 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 all of us have a culture that we come with. Uh, let me let me let me give an example. So, in my family, um, to play dominoes, uh, my uncles and cut they would get loud. And so I'm very passionate. When I get passionate, I get loud. And what I found early on in Transformation Church, that the white members of our staff thought I was angry because I got loud. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm just passionate. And I want you to challenge my ideas. I want you to slap your domino on the table and say domino. You know what I'm saying? And so I've had to learn to adjust. So, so what happens is if you don't have cultural cross-cultural competency, um, that can present a tremendous problem because you don't meet the needs of the people if you don't see from their perspective. So case in point, on, uh, on January 6, 2021, um, the insurrection took place by predominantly a white mob, right? And so um, a pastor who led predominantly Oh, white mega church who's trying to be diverse. His staff wanted him to say something. And he goes, well, I don't really know what to say. Like, 
like, you know, hey, the insurrection didn't work and the government officials did their jobs and we're good. And he, he and I said, well, would you like to know what I said to my staff? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what I said to my staff was this is I said, um, if you're black or a person of color, my heart hurts with you because, you know, and I know if it was a black mob doing that towards the U.S. Capitol, blood would have ran on the streets. It wouldn't even have gotten that far. And Mm -hmm. I said, if you're black and you've seen a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol, the Confederacy wanted to mm. keep people enslaved and didn't even want to be a part of the American experiment. And you see that in the yeah. U.S. Capitol. It is devastating emotion. It's like generational trauma. The Confederate flag to me speaks of rape and murder and lynching. But then as an American, it speaks of I don't want to be American. And then my great, 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 great grandfather, Moses Davis, fought in the Civil War in the Virginia Cavalry 4th Regiment colored unit against the Confederacy because the flag stands for liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. And then when I said that, he was like, wow, I never thought of that. And it's like, well, here's why. Because you've, you haven't lived in that context. And that's why it's important to have diverse voices in place with authority and leadership to communicate those things. Cross-cultural competency is very important. And so as a minority, my whole life has been learning the story of the other. Like, you know how many years I've been talking about Juneteenth? And I'm so glad that Juneteenth is now going to be a holiday. Like, I grew up in Texas. Like, we celebrated Juneteenth. And so... And so for those who don't know, uh, go go ahead, Myron. Yeah, four minutes, speak on Juneteenth because it's coming up. I think it's important even from a when you talk about practices, you know, something as simple as beginning to practice practices that we as African-Americans, blacks, you know, for 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 years have been doing. But can you just speak to Juneteenth right now? I just think it's fair to talk about Juneteenth. Yeah. Yeah. So so so. Growing up in Texas on June 19, black people would have celebration and barbecues. At first, I didn't have no clue what it meant. But as I got older, I understood what Juneteenth was. So 1863, Emancipation Proclamation, enslaved people are set free, except for in the state of Texas. It wasn't until 1865, June something, that black people realized that they were actually free. They had been living Mm. in slavery in Texas for two years, even though they were free. And so Juneteenth was the celebration of when the Union soldiers came to say, hey, man, y'all been free for two years. So that's what Juneteenth is, right? So, So that's a part of cultural awareness, But it's also something to celebrate as the United States of America that evil didn't win. Enslaving people didn't win. Mm. You know, fighting liberty and justice for all. People may not know what liberty is. The word liberty means freedom. Justice means 
undoing what's wrong. Liberty and justice yeah. for all. And so that's what Juneteenth is about. And so when you have a diversity of voices, you can you can talk about those things like the New Testament is not colorless and it's not cultureless. Mm. Yeah. So Jesus would have grown up in Nazareth understanding what Roman occupation and domination was. He would have grown up understanding what systemic injustice was and Roman privilege was and systemic injustice at the temple. Like those things are sin. Like he would have known those things. And so, you know, from a practical level, right, diverse leadership is important. And that means prayer and fasting and developing and having relationships. Secondly, Cross-cultural competency is so important. Cross-cultural competency means I'm willing to take time to learn about you and your culture. I yeah. love you so much. I'm willing to step in your shoes. Um, one area of my life that has been expanded is traveling to Montana with my wife. And I remember the first time we went and... Um, we drove through Native American reservations and I was just silent. I just couldn't believe there were people who lived on reservations. And then as I gotten to learn more about Native Americans with uh, physical health from diabetes, uh, mental slash brain health and um, illiteracy rates and all these things. And I'm going, man, think of the generational trauma and pain of these people whose land and culture was stolen. And so what does that mean for me? It means that I want to become an advocate of justice because I'm a Christian. And so what are ways that I can help? Like I can't do a lot, but I can do a little bit. And if everybody just does a little bit, um, a lot right. can happen. And I think that's what acts of kindness and grace and mercy are. But unfortunately, being Christians in the West, we're very individualistic. We say things like, well, I had nothing to do with that. Right. Well, you know what? We didn't have anything to do with it, but we certainly did inherit the benefits of what happened as a result of it. My home in Charlotte, North Carolina, is in an area where the Catawba Native Americans were. They're not here anymore. So I have benefited from what happened to them. Everybody who's alive today has benefited from what happened to generations past. And so we have to stop being so, and I'm going to say, say this, we have to stop being so selfish and unbiblical. Like, yeah. why would we not want to go, oh my gosh, what happened in the past was awful. And I want to be about changing it. Why is it that we yeah. just want to remember good things from the past, but not the bad things? You know, I, you know, so so I think the answer is it's pride, it's hubris, it's the devil. But I think the power of cross-cultural competency, the power of diverse leadership in the gospel creates a loving, kind church that is able to give the world hope that they see Jesus. Yeah in the way people love each other. So this is more than just having different colors in a room together. Right. This is about being the family fact, God promised Abraham. We, we have a, we have a question from the audience that kind of is on the heels of what you just said. And the question is, how can we get beyond the, and I, this is a powerful question that, that I'm passionate about. How can we get beyond the multi 
cultural drive to have black faces, but not black voices or choices? Well, the way you get past it is you have to have a deeper understanding of what true ethnic diversity is. Um, you know, I think there's a period where people think, particularly if it's a white church, that, hey, I have a black worship leader, so I'm being diverse. Or I have a few chocolate chips <laughs> and a bowl of vanilla, so I'm being diverse. It's actually more than a person's face. It's their voice. It's their being. It, it, it's treating people as legitimately brothers and sisters. Mm. I mean, it's really not deeper than that. It's like, are we really brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that really the case? If so, right. then let's treat each other as such. When you think about churches that have tried to retain multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, and maybe they started off mono-ethnic, the uh, mistakes and pitfalls you've seen along the way that that people should steer clear of. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I would say the first mistake that I've seen is um, people looking at secular resources, preaching that, and pissing people off because there's nothing redemptive. And so, in the last few years, what I have seen is a whole lot of sociological things and not a lot of theological things. And I want to say this lovingly and with sensitivity is the George Floyd murder only opened up the window wider to what's actually happening. I'm glad that the George Floyd murder opened up people's eyes but systemic injustice and racism is so much bigger than George Floyd, right? And so what mm -hmm. I seen is right after George Floyd, there were a lot of people teaching. Um, they wasn't teaching that Jesus and the gospel is actually the solution to the issue because the Jesus and the gospel they heard was, hey, well, Jesus died for your sins and you're forgiven. Versus, no, he died to forgive you, to put you in a family so that you can begin to love each other because you're united to him and united to each other. And this is your destiny as children of Abraham because God made a promise. And learning to do right. the hard gospel work, developing the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but consider your brother's and sisters better than yourselves. Yeah, yeah um, you know, so let, let, let me answer this question. Can you speak a little bit to how pastors should approach critical race theory? The, S, the SBC convention this week seems to indicate we are divided and unable to have civil conversation about many racial topics. Ooh, okay, let me take a deep <laughs> breath. <clears throat> Number one, I have done doctoral level work. I wrote a 50,000 word thesis statement on the topic mm. of how multi-ethnic churches are a sign that God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. I had never heard of CRT 
until I began to see Southern Baptist white dudes talk about, about it. <laughs> I don't know not one pastor who adheres to CRT. I don't know anybody who adheres to it. So what do I think about it? I don't think much about it. And so, <laughs> um, you know, so this is well, what I will me, say. Let me ask you this, though. Though, Derwin, um, I agree. I like I, I had never really heard of it until. But although the premise of critical race theory of art of systems and structures of injustice prohibiting people from the the dream of God on their life, like essentially critical race theory. Um, but I think it's been it's been taken into this place that is causing further division. So, like, how would you reconcile the fact that I personally think that there are systems and structures in place designed to keep people of color because I've experienced it. So, so, so like, so, so, so this is, this is what I would say is this, I don't need critical race theory to tell me native Americans have experienced genocide and injustice. I don't need critical race theory to tell me that black people have been enslaved. I don't need critical race theory to tell me that women couldn't vote till 1920. I don't need critical race theory to tell me that many churches supported the Confederacy, that many churches were against civil rights. I don't need critical race theory to tell me that the justice system is impartial towards people of color and the poor. Now, critical race theory uh, was launched in its modern form by Derek Bell, who was a Vietnam veteran, who also marched with Dr. King. He was, a, I believe, a Harvard-trained lawyer. And his idea was this. Critical race theory looks at the legal world and the lens by which law seems to be pitted against primarily African-Americans. And somehow that has gotten blown up to it's the worst thing in the world. Personally, we know total depravity exists. We know that they're dark demonic powers, and we know that for Christians, the flesh still exists. So therefore, we would expect a lot of those things to still be in play. And personally, I think critical race theory has become a big distraction to actual and real yeah. racism. What I want to know is, so at the heart of critical race theory, it's pointing out that um, white people have benefited from the systems and structures and processes and black people and people of color have not. And I see so much energy from some white people to defend that that's not the case. And it's like, why didn't you have the same energy for this for the actual racism that's happening to people of color and black people, particularly as Christians? I'm against any form of racism and research shows this, that I believe it's 57% of white evangelicals believe that they are discriminated against to the level that black people are. And so let me say this, it seems like persecution when people are simply asking for equality. Mm. And as Christians of all people on the planet earth, we should be the most humble and the most welcoming to say, 
The table of Abraham is big enough for all of God's people. And there's enough food for all of us to eat. Yeah. That's so good, man. Um, when, when a church decides, Derwin, to pursue diversity, um, pursue becoming, go, going from mono-ethnic to multi-ethnic, when a church decides to do that, that has been primarily one, one, one representation, you almost inevitably lose people. Yes. So, yeah, so speak to them. And then how do you minimize the damage? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, so um, particularly like, so, so like if you really decide to do this, whether if you are a white pastor, Latino pastor, Asian pastor, black pastor, and a dominant, whatever group is the dominant, and because you're pursuing the heart of Jesus to create this beautiful family and the demographics around you are diverse and you want to reflect that because of the gospel, um, you're going to lose probably 25 to 30% of your people off the bat. And that's a good thing. It's called a blessed subtraction mm. because they're going to be uh, a rock in your shoe. Mm. Um, a lot of my white pastor friends, when they've gone down this road within four or five months, they've lost 30 percent of their congregation, primarily white. And the excuses are just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel is code for don't mess with my political idolatry. Wow. Don't mess with my pet prejudices. And don't make me feel uncomfortable. Mm. That's what I've learned over the years. And so you have to be willing to let those people go so that God can bring the right people, because we know this. God's desire is for us to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. And sadly, most people don't hear the Bible preached in context. And what I mean by, by that is this. When Jesus, for example, feeds 5,000 people on one side of the Sea of Galilee, goes to the other side and feeds 4,000 people on the Sea of Galilee. What's the significance? Well, one side of the sea is Jewish. The other side mm -hmm. of the sea is Gentile. That's, wow. a, that's a picture of the family. Also, when Jesus wow. goes to the temple, and we make a big deal of him overturning the money uh, um, changers. What's going on there? The Sadducees had bought temple booths from the Romans. They had the money to do to do, do that. The booths were owned by the priests. What they were doing in the court of the Gentiles is the Gentiles would bring their sacrifices because they were God fears, and they would say, "This isn't good enough. You got to buy some more." And so what they would do is it was systemic injustice. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, you're turning my father's house into a den of thieves. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, wow. what is the house of prayer now? It's not a temple. It's the people of God. It's the church. And so Jesus is always giving these glimpses and these glimmers of what he came to do. And we see that in Acts and we see that in the letter of Paul, all of Paul's letters is how does the saving, redeeming work of King Jesus form a mature, multi-ethnic family 
to join wow. Jesus on his mission. So good. So good. And, and, and so it takes time to develop that. So don't try to turn a ship overnight. And that's why I created building a multi-ethnic church is a resource to take time to let the DNA pour into you and to strengthen you. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, Derwin, we, we have about 10 to 15 minutes left and I want to reserve that time for you to speak to um, anything in your book that, that you think we need to hear, but then also need to obviously buy the book and, and, and digest it, et cetera. But what are, what are maybe some key takeaways for our audience from your book that is a, is that you need to get out and talk about so we can get the book? Yeah. So, so number one, this is a discipleship issue. And what is discipleship? To be a disciple is an apprentice or student. Our teacher is Jesus. And Jesus wants to not only teach us how to truly be human, but he also wants to empower us to do, do that. So number one, this book is going to give you a greater glimpse of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. That's number one. Number two, you're going to be in awe of like, oh my gosh, the church can be so much more. Number yeah. three, you're going to be personally discipled. And then number four, you'll have the potential to partner with the Holy Spirit in creating a local church that instead of adding to the noise of division, creates this song of love over the division. Right now, the church is just as loud and devices as unbelievers, and we should be a unifying force. And this is what the book will do. Um, the first part of the book will give you just incredible theological reflections on Jesus and the church. The second part of the book will give you practices that you can implement. And so this is a discipleship resource. It's like me sitting down with you, holding you by the hand, walking you through it. Mm. What a wonderful, I love it. I love it, Darren, because, you know, there are a lot of voices in our culture, Christian and non-Christian, that is trying to advocate and speak up for justice. But what I hear you saying is injustice, racism, homogeneity, all of the, all of that is a disciple issue. Yeah. And like, through the lens of discipleship versus the lens of anything else, that further divides us. And, and if you're watching or you're catching the replay, I want, I want you to hear that loud and clear. That's one of the things that Exponential is an advocate of, which is disciple making. And so to have their voice speak into this and yeah. say, hey, this is a discipleship issue. We want you to get the book and don't just get it for yourself. After you get the book, the next step is then get the book for your staff. And after your staff gets the book, get the book for key leaders. In fact, let me let me back up. You, you get the book, give it to your board, then, then give it to your staff, then give it to key volunteers, and then we want you to turn it. I'm just getting loud because I'm excited. We want you to turn it into a sermon series. Yeah. And then once you turn it into a sermon series, I want you to turn it into a class. And then when you turn it into a class, I want you to turn it into workshops. Then when you turn it into a workshop, I want you to turn it into a conference for your church so you can invite Derwin Gray. So if you can, if, if you could just take those steps right there, your church, I'm telling you, is going to go and accelerate it, elevate it. 
um, opportunity to see Jesus actually really is. And so, Dirk, thank you so much for um, thank you, my time. friend. Yeah, man. Would you mind maybe just praying um, for I us, Derwin, and then maybe one word of encouragement to people yeah, man. watching? Yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, let me let me let me give you a word of encouragement. Uh, number number one, um, Jesus is bigger, better, and more beautiful than whatever we could imagine. Um, trust mm-hmm. him, even when you can't feel him, even when you can't see him. Trust that his gracious initiatives are moving. Uh, Father, in the matchless name of Jesus, I thank you for every leader that has tuned in. I want to pray that the conversation has pointed them to the greatest leader of all, Jesus. He was a leader who served. He served by way of a sinless life. He served by way of a bloody death as a better Passover lamb, a better sacrifice. He led and served by raising from the dead, and he and his daddy sent the spirit so that we can be unified in the family that he called Abraham to. And Lord, I want to pray for us as leaders to be saturated and soaked in Jesus, expand the borders of our understanding of his redemptive work. And I pray that my book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, would play a role in that. Be glorified in your name, we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, Darren. Appreciate you, Nebraska. <laughs> hey, hey, Darren, where can we uh, buy the book? I know it's on Amazon. Where else is it? It's is everywhere. That? Everywhere books are sold. Um, you can pick it up. You can also follow me on social media. It's at Derwin L. Gray. My website is DerwinLGray.com. That'll take you to Transformation Church. That'll take you to all the books. But I would be honored to walk alongside of you and partner with you as you read Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Appreciate you, big bro, man. Looking forward to this again. All right, brother. Peace out. Bye.